Rabbi Abitan often referred to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein as the Posik of America and was very fond of his work. And the story is an interesting story where he was at a convention, a convention where there were hundreds or perhaps thousands of Jews. And he stepped aside to go get a cup of coffee and he came to the table to get a cup of coffee. And he picked up the, the coffee, filled it up the cup, filled up the coffee cup. And afterwards, he went to reach over for some milk. He picked up one car and put it down, and he picked up another car, and, and he poured that milk. One can't imagine how one small action could have such an incredible effect. There were two kosher milks at the time, two kosher Chalav Yisrael milks. One of them was J&J, and the other one was Golden Flow. All of us went to, went to elementary school in those days. We remembered those two brands of milk. And... Uh, and uh, what happened was he picked up one of them, put it down, and then he picked up the other one. Well, the one that he put down was uh, J&J. And uh, within days, people stopped buying J&J milk, saying that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein must have felt that it wasn't kosher or kosher enough. He wouldn't drink it, and he drank the Golden Flow instead. Seeing the sales plummeting, the president of J&J came to Rabbi Moshe's house, and he said, uh, what did I do wrong? Uh, is my milk not kosher? What did I do? What did I do that you didn't tell me that people stopped buying my milk because of you? And the rabbi said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you were at the convention and they also, you pick up the J&J container, look at it, put it down, and then picked up the golden flow and used the golden flow. And everyone assumes from that that our milk isn't kosher enough. And the rabbi said, oh my gosh. He said, I picked up the J&J, I remember. I picked it up and it was empty. And I put it down. And then I picked up the other one because there was milk in it. There's nothing wrong with your milk. And he had to go then and publicize the fact that the J&J milk was fine. So we don't realize many times we can have an action, do an action, and that action could have a tremendous effect on other people, even without our knowledge. We uh, begin this week's parashah, Behalotecha, we talk about the menorah. And we talk about the lighting of the menorah. When you raise up the flames of the menorah. A flame will light other flames and it will not diminish itself. In terms of influence, you can influence other people and those people can spread your influence. So you share your influence, it actually grows. It's very similar to the lighting of a candle. You light the candle, your own candle doesn't diminish and all the other candles become lit. Let's just keep that in mind. The second half of this week's parasha is filled with many, many subjects. We read a chapter which itself has a many subtopics. So just to, to, to recap, uh, on the one hand, the nation just exited from Mount Sinai. The rabbis are somewhat critical of us at the exit from Mount Sinai. We're running away from Mount Sinai, worried we're gonna get more laws they compare it to a child running away from school, afraid he's going to get more homework. So let's get out of here as quickly as we can. In reality, what should have happened after they left Har Sinai is they should have been able to go into Eretz Israel in the next few days. They come out of Egypt, recent slaves. And when they came out of Egypt initially, they were complaining, but they had just come out of Egypt. They were slaves. So we were able to forgive them for complaining. They come and they say, they hear the... Aseret brought at Har Sinai. Moshe is going to bring down the tablets, and he sees they're worshiping a golden calf. Moshe throws the tablets down. The people repent. Moshe asks for forgiveness. 
and Moshe comes down on Yom Kippur, the people are forgiven, the next day they start to build the Mishkan, and six months later the Mishkan is dedicated on Rosh Chodesh Nisan. We're now a month after that, and Bnei Israel, already getting the man, already getting the water, already seeing the miracles, are ready to embark on their journey into Israel. What happens now is they start to complain again. They start to complain again about the man. They start to complain again about other things. And they remember the delicacies that they had in Egypt, which is very, very strange. The sequence of events causes somewhat of a meltdown as Moshe Rabbeinu cries up to God and he says, I've had it. I can't take it anymore. I can't handle these people anymore. God, enough. Kill me now. I can't do it. Get rid of me. In response, Hashem does two things. He instructs Moshe to appoint 70 elders who will assist him in leading the people. And he sends an abundance of meat, which ultimately causes a plague. So while the nature of the assistance provided by those 70 people is really hard to understand, as we're going to see, I sometimes think of it that Moshe is the candle and he has the, he's the one candle, he's the one light. And what happens is by getting these 70, he lights each of these 70 with his own light. And all they do is spread the light that comes from Moshe. So we're going to focus, though, on two people. Two people that are mentioned in the beginning of this parasha. Moses goes out, tells the people that Hashem, what he said, he assembles the 70 men of the elders of the people. And they go in front of the Mishkan, in front of the Ohel Moed, in front of the tent of meeting. So they leave the basic camp, they go into the, the center of the camp where is the Mishkan, and they're a little bit away from the people. Hashem descends in a cloud, speaks to Moshe. He increases some of the spirit of Moshe, whatever that means. He bestows it upon the 70 elders, so we're saying, takes from Moshe's flame, maybe expands Moshe's flame somewhat so that it could light all the others. And when the spirit rested upon those other 70, they prophesied. And then it says, they did not continue, whether that means they did not continue to prophesize or they did not stop one or the other. And then the two interesting point. We now have two men who remain in the camp. The name of one is Eldad and the name of the second is Medad. And the spirit rested upon them. So here we have two minor characters in the Torah. And I'd like to explore why they're mentioned, why they are important, why they are re- reincarnated, and what we learn from them. It's fitting to explore their significance, the significance of the prophecies of Eldad and Meldad as well, as Medad as well. Instead of joining the other, the chosen 70, instead of coming to the Oyamu'ed, what do they do? They're prophesizing in the camp. And what are the words of the prophecy that they say? They say, Moshe will die. Now remember, this is way before the hitting of the rock. This is only a year out of Egypt. Moshe will die, and Yehoshua will bring Israel into the land. Yehoshua is going to lead the people and take Bnei Israel into the land. This then provokes a zealous reaction from Yehoshua. He turns to Moshe, and he says to them, Kil'am. Stop them, incarcerate them, kill them. To put the events in, in, in context, we have to remember, we see in the Torah itself, we, read, we, we mentioned, it says, I cannot bear the burden by myself of this entire nation. Because they are too cumbersome for me. 
So Moshe did as he's instructed. Moshe. Moshe goes out. And he speaks to the people at Divrei Hashem. It says, and now he gathers these 70. And like we said, Hashem descends in the cloud on them and they prophesize. Now comes the mysterious part. Who are Eldad and Medad? In addition to the 70 elders gathered around the Ohamoed, they also begin to prophesy. However, they don't join the others. They remain in the camp as the Pasuk says. So then the Pasuk continues and says, Vayarat Hanar. The boy ran. Who's the boy? Rashid tells us it's Moshe's son. Moshe's son Gershom, he runs. And he tells Moshe what's happening, and that's when Yehoshua gets very upset. He gets very upset. Now we have a question. What prompted Eldad and Medad to publicly declare that Moshe will die and Yehoshua will bring the people in? Could you imagine what that's going to cause? You see how dependent the people are on Moshe. One of the reasons for the golden calf was what? The people thought Moshe wasn't coming back. Now you're telling them that Moshe, the leader, who got them through the incident of the golden calf, and now we're leaving Har Sinai, and we're going into the land. Guess what? Moshe's out of here, and young Yehoshua, he's going to lead us. What prompted Yehoshua to question and mistrust their prophecy? Moshe Yehoshua should have, whoa, yeah, I'm going to be the leader? Whoa, thank you, boys. Why does he get so upset? And then why does Moshe praise them? And he says to Yehoshua, when Yehoshua tells Moshe, you should stop them, destroy them, imprison them. What does he tell him? He says, are, are you jealous for me? And wouldn't it be wonderful if Hashem, if all of the people could be prophets, if Hashem would place His Spirit upon every one of them. You see, Moshe is not jealous at all. He's not jealous at all of them prophesying. He's not even angry at what they're saying. We see the beauty at the end of the parashah. We see that Moshe is called the most humble person. We see that Moshe is the, the greatest Navi, the one who hears. And we see he's humble. We see his humility, his humility here. At the end of the Torah, we see his humility. To begin with, we have a fascinating story that's told by Chazal in the Gemara of Chagiga. It involves two men who were mutes, who couldn't speak, who lived in the neighborhood of Rebbe. Whenever Rebbe entered the Bet HaMidrash to study Torah, they also entered the Bet Midrash with him, and they sat down in front of him. And when he would teach, they would nod their heads, they would move their lips, indicating they understood, they comprehended his lessons. Upon seeing how much they exerted themselves in their study of the Torah, Rabbi prayed to Hashem and he requested divine mercy. And they were healed and they began to speak. Once they began to speak, it became evident from the intellectual conversations and debates that they were tremendous Talmidei Chachamim, well versed in the entire Torah and the Mishnayot, the whole Talmud, all of the Midrashim. In his Sefer Gilgul Neshamot, the reincarnation of the souls, the Mekubal, the Ramah of Pano, he teaches us that Eldad and Medad reincarnated into these two mutes. These two students of Rabbi who couldn't speak were Eldad and Medad. The Ramah of Pano explains that this reincarnation to a person who couldn't speak, this was their atonement 
for publicizing their prophecy without being authorized to do so. Had they been authorized to publicize the prophecy, the Nebuah, the Torah, he suggests, would have used the word Lemor, indicating their words were meant to be transmitted to others. To substantiate the point that they were not authorized to publicize the Nebuah, the Ramah of Pano cites the Pasuk that Eldad and Medad are prophesizing in the camp. According to the Baal Turim, the content of the Nebuah is alluded to in the term Mitnaveim. That's the word he used, prophesizing. And he breaks it down as an acronym. Moshe Tanuach Nafsho, Moshe's soul will rest, Began Elokim, in the garden of God, Yehoshua Mechanis. Yehoshua Machnis. Yehoshua will bring us into the land. He says, since they were not authorized to give over this Nebuah, to others, they were punished. They became mutes in order to rectify their transgression. Despite their inability to speak, they demonstrated diligence and self-sacrifice in the study of the Torah. And therefore, Rabbeinu HaKadosh prayed for them, and he prayed on their behalf, and they were healed. But we still have to clarify further. Why were Eldad and Medad punished by reincarnating into mutes? Is it because they were not authorized to reveal the Nebuah to others, as the Ramah from Pano suggests? If so, why did Hashem reveal this to them? Why would Hashem reveal to them specifically that Moshe Rabbeinu is going to die and Yehoshua is going to bring us into the land? It seems quite clear that it was precisely for this reason that they saw fit to pronounce the Nebuah. They saw fit to pronounce it publicly. Otherwise, why would Hashem tell them? If this is true, we have to go back to the original question. Why was it necessary for them to reincarnate into two mutes? Why did they require atonement? All of this is from the Shvile Pinchas, and he refers us back to the Gemara in Sanhedrin. He, there we quote the Pasuk, two men remained behind in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the second was Medad. At first glance, this suggests that of the 70 elders chosen to prophesize, two of them remained in the camp. This, however, cannot be correct, seeing as the Torah officially states that there were 70 elders with Moshe at the Oel Moed, who received the Nebuah. So how does the text say that these two men remain behind in the camp according to the Gemara? What's going on? The Gemara explains that Moshe had to pick 70 people. How do you pick 70 people? So Moshe took from each tribe six people. Six people each from 12 tribes is 72. And what's he going to do? do I, which, which two do I get rid of? There's going to be two extra. What do I do? So he chose six elders from each tribe, and he brought 72 lots. On 70 of the lots he wrote, elder. And on two of them he left them blank. He said to all of the 72, the six from each tribe, come, everyone's going to pick from the lottery. Whoever's going to pick the blank one, they're the ones Hashem doesn't, doesn't uh, want to join us. Everyone else, Hashem is picking, so what can I do? Don't blame me. So this scenario explains that two men remained in the camp. It refers to Eldad and Medad. They remained in the camp. 
According to Rashi, we say that the Hema Baketuvim, they were written. If they were written, that means they pulled the paper that said elder. If they pulled the paper that said elder, then why in the world would they get left in the camp? They should have gone with everyone else. But we see a beautiful explanation by one of the Rishonim, Rav Yosef Bechorshor. He explains that Eldad and Medad had tremendously valid reasoning. Perhaps by Ruach HaKodesh they saw that two of the other 72 would not be picked. And they didn't want to embarrass anyone. So they decided, you know what? We are going to just stay home and let the other 70 go. So none of them should be embarrassed. Therefore they notified Moshe Rabbeinu that they did not consider themselves worthy of such distinction and they preferred to remain in the camp. As a result, the other 70 all went out to the Ohel Moed and they were left behind. So they, are, they seem to be wonderful people, humble people. They didn't want to take away from someone else's honor. So why is Yehoshua so upset with them when all they did was say what Hashem told them? Why would Yehoshua turn to Moshe and say, kill them, imprison them, stop them? The Ramban explains Yehoshua's reasoning and concern. After all, Moshe merely transmitted Hashem's instructions to Bnei Israel. He was instructed to assemble 70 elders to stand around the Ohel Moed with them. There Hashem would impart some of Moshe's spirit to them. Therefore, when Yehoshua heard that Eldad and Medad remained in the camp, and they were saying prophecy in the camp, what did he conclude? Ah, they're not prophets. They must be false prophets. And therefore, they're false prophets because look at what they're saying. That Moshe is going to die and Yehoshua is going to bring the people in. He felt that what this was, was a denial and a challenge to the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore, he turned to Moshe and says, terminate them. You can't accept this challenge, this denial of your leadership from false prophets. And as false prophets, they deserve to be punished accordingly. Furthermore, the Ramban explains that Moshe informed Yehoshua that Hashem himself conferred the spirit of Nevuah upon these people. It's unbelievable. So now Yehoshua looks at them as false prophets. Moshe is saying, ah, Moshe, ah, Yeshua, they're not false prophets. They had extreme humility. They were willing to forego the honor of being among the 70 elders. This is the significance of Moshe's response where he says, wouldn't it be wonderful if the entire people of Hashem could be prophets? If Hashem would place His Spirit upon all of them. These two, Eldad and Medad, did not need to receive a spirit from me. Hashem bestowed His Spirit directly on them and that enabled them to prophesy in the camp. With this understanding, we could explain why Eldad and Medad offered the Nevoah even without proper authorization. The Moshav Zekenim of the Tosafists, they're baffled by Yehoshua's reaction to the fact that Eldad and Medad were prophesizing. 
After all, we learned in the Mishnah that if a Navi suppresses his Nebuah, if he does not transmit what Hashem tells him, he's liable to death by the hands of heaven. That being the case, Eldad and Medad receive a Nebuah, and that means they're obligated to give over the Nebuah. And they were obligated not to conceal the fact that Moshe would die and Yahushua would bring them into the, into the land. So how do we answer this question? The Tosafist answer, the Navi is only punished if Hashem specifically tells him, say this prophecy to the people. We see the case of Yonah ben Amitai. Hashem told him to go talk to the people of Nineveh. What did, what did Yonah do? He ran away on the boat. Ran away on the boat, gets swallowed by the fish, and we have the whole story that we read in Yom Kippur. So it is possible, it seems, according to the Rambam, that a Navi could get Nevu'ah, and the Nevu'ah given to the Navi is solely for his own sake. It's only for that Navi to expand his perception and to increase his knowledge enabling that Navi to know more about the lofty concepts than he knew before. Therefore, when a Navi receives a Nebuah without being directed to give over that Nebuah, he's not allowed to give it over. In fact, these words of the Rambam help appreciate why Eldad and Maldad says, what, what's going on now? If, if they're not supposed to give it over or they're supposed to give it over, well, that's the question we have. So their reasoning could be that if a Navi is only not supposed to give it over when the Nevu'ah will increase his perception and his own knowledge, we have to realize that what happened here, the knowledge that their rabbi, that their leader, and some say that their brother, they were half-brothers to Moshe, the knowledge that he would pass away and that Yehoshua would take them into Eretz Yisrael, isn't going to cause them any joy or uplifting of spirit or knowledge. It's rather going to cause them depression. And therefore, if Hashem is telling them something that's not going to give them some uplifting, they felt they were obligated to share that information. So now we have to then understand, okay, if so, why was it necessary at this point in history, right before B'nai Israel are going to enter Eretz Yisrael. Why was it necessary for Hashem to reveal that Moshe will die and Yehoshua will bring them in? And why was it necessary for them to publicize it before Moshe even knew it? We're going to see next week's Parashah, Parashah Shelach. Vayikra Moshe. Moshe called Lehoshea Binun to Hoshea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. Rashi says over there, why did Moshe change the name of Yehoshua from Hoshea to Yehoshua? Says he prayed for him, for Yehoshua. May God save him from the plot of the Meraglim. The Targum Yonatan comments, when Moshe recognized that Yehoshua, his student, took from Moshe his greatest attribute of humility, when he saw how humble Yehoshua would be, Moshe realized it was necessary to add strength to Hoshea bin Nun and call him Yehoshua. 
the commentaries explore the connection between the degree of his humility and the fact that Moshe realized he needed to pray for him. Navodat Yisrael gives a beautiful explanation that we mentioned one of the years in the Perashah of, of, uh, of, uh, of the spies. He says, the fact that Yehoshua was disturbed by the Nevuah of Eldad and Medad and wanted them to be punished immediately demonstrated to Moshe Rabbeinu the degree of the humility of Yehoshua. He was not anxious to receive the baton from Moshe. He was not anxious to become the leader. He wanted Moshe Rabbeinu to continue to lead. He wanted to remain the loyal servant of Moshe. Hence Moshe feared that when they went in the, the spies and there were some that were greater than Yehoshua and they went in, there were many that were greater than him. He was afraid that Yehoshua would look at these great rabbis who were against the land and say, who am I to argue with them? And he would go along with them. He would go along with those who spoke disparagingly about the land because he was so humble. In that case, Moshe would continue to live outside of the land until the people were really ready to go into the land. This then is the message conveyed by the Targum Yonatan. When Moshe recognized the degree of the humility of Yahushua, which was apparent from his anger towards Eldad and Medat, he became very concerned that Yehoshua might concur with the Meraglim so that Israel would not enter the land, which would allow Moshe Rabbeinu to remain alive. This prompted Moshe to change the name of Hosea to Yehoshua so Hashem should save him and give him the strength to fight against the plot of the Meraglim. Thus it appears this is why Hashem revealed the Nevuah to Eldad and Medad in Kivrot HaTa'ava prior to the journey to Chatzerot, the site of the sin of the Meraglim. It was imperative that the Nevuah become known to Moshe and his pupil Yehoshua. For as a result of the zealous reaction of Yehoshua, defending the honor of Moshe, it became apparent to Moshe that he had to pray on behalf of Yehoshua. Otherwise, Yehoshua might have been swayed by the Meraglim in order to prolong the life of Moshe. Think about this when we come to next week's parasha. So then the question goes back. If they did a good thing, if they got a prophecy, they were supposed to give the prophecy, they gave the prophecy, why were they punished to come back as a Gilgul and to not be able to speak? Avtalion says, Scholars, be cautious with your words, for you may be incur the penalty of exile and be banished to a place of evil waters, to a place of heresy. The disciples who follow, who misunderstand what you're saying, they will drink and die consequently, and the name of Hashem will be desecrated. Rabbeinu Yonah explains the words of Abtalion. He says, scholars must be very cautious with their words. Just like we explained the story of, of Rav Moshe Feinstein. He picks up a bottle of a container of milk. Does he think that that's going to have such a tremendous effect? He says, they have to be careful not to leave room for heretics to corrupt. Otherwise, they're going to incur the penalty of galut and be exiled to the place of heresy, a place where people interpret the Torah incorrectly, <clears throat> where people will deduce incorrect conclusions from the teachings of the rabbis, mislead their students, and then they will die. 
for they will have heard the words of their teachers, but not comprehended correctly. They will rely on the heretics who interpreted incorrectly, and this will cause the punishment of exile. Avtalion specifically addresses this caution to students of Torah, to scholars of Torah. We learn in the Gemara that there is no atonement to the serious transgression of Chilul Hashem. Not even Teshuvah or suffering helps. The concept of Chilul Hashem is defined. It is defined. It varies from person to person depending on the spiritual level. The greater and more knowledgeable a person is in the realm of Torah, the more he has to take care that his teachings and his actions do not desecrate the name of Hashem. We must preclude the possibility that people might say, look at this great Torah scholar. Look how he behaves. We see several examples presented by the rabbis. It's interesting, the Gemara says, what's the nature of Chidul Hashem? Rab says something unbelievable. If someone would like me to take meat from a butcher and not give him money immediately, that would constitute a Chidul Hashem. Since the butcher is going to suspect that this great rabbi is taking the meat and he's not going to pay me. Rav Yochanan said, such as someone like me walking four cubits without studying Torah or without wearing tefillin, this is considered a chilul Hashem. They're judged more strictly. They have to be very, very careful. I think in our times, all of us are judged like this. And all of us have to be very careful. We therefore could begin to comprehend the punishment of Eldad and Medad. They were sadikim. They were willing to forego the honor of receiving Nebuah in order not to embarrass two elders who would not have been concluded in the seven day. In that merit, Hashem gave them this unique Nebuah in order to save Yehoshua later on from the Meraglim. Nevertheless, they were forced to reincarnate into two people who couldn't speak. Because they caused Yehoshua and many others like Yehoshua to believe that they acted improperly. In reality, what they did was correct. Because they felt that it was prohibited to suppress that nevuah. Yet since they were great Torah scholars and prophets, they were aware of the admonition to be careful with what they say. So as not to cause a chilul Hashem. Therefore, they had to be reincarnated in order to fulfill, in order to fix what they had done. Now let's try to understand what Hashem is doing. He sends these two sadikim as Gilgulim, in the form of two people who cannot speak, and where they come to learn Torah from Rabbeinu HaKadosh. However, they were not destined to be mute all their lives, but only for a, for a limited period of time. The time they learned the entire Torah from Rabbeinu HaKadosh. At that time, Rabbeinu HaKadosh prayed for them and they resumed speaking like everyone else. The Gemara tells us, it was taught in a Ebraita. Rabbi Ben'a used to say, anyone who studies Torah Lishma, his Torah learning becomes an elixir of life for him. As it says, it is a tree of life, it's chayini, it's for those who cling to it. But anyone who studies Torah not Lishma, it becomes a lethal poison. In light of what we learn, we can understand why Rabbeinu HaKadosh prayed that they be healed. He saw that they attended every single Torah class. He said they get everything he gave, they took. 
The way they nodded their heads, they moved their lips, he knew that they understood what he was doing. Furthermore, it was understood by Rabbeinu HaKadosh that they were studying Torah Lishma. Why? Because they couldn't speak it over, they couldn't give it over, they couldn't take honor from the Torah they learned. Therefore, what did he do? He prayed that they should be cured. It says, ultimately it became apparent to everyone around them that they had studied Torah Lishma without any ulterior motives, that they were true Kiddush Hashem. In this manner, by doing a true Kiddush Hashem, the reincarnation of Eldad and Medad made up for the slight Hilul Hashem that they did when they prophesied and they caused the misunderstanding. Sometimes we don't think that those around us know we're Jewish. But they do. Sometimes we think, I get rid of the yarmulke, nobody knows I'm Jewish, I look like everyone else. You know, we all grew up and we said, you know, we look like the Italians, nobody knows we're Jewish, right? But they all know we're Jewish. Everyone knows we're Jewish. And every action we do is monitored. And often, every action we do, the entire Jewish people are judged by what we do. It's not only the rabbi. It's each and every one of us, every single days of our lives. I received a video a couple of days ago of a National Guardsman. And the National Guardsman was standing there and he was talking and holding some food and coffee and he was saying how much he appreciated being sent to a Jewish community. He said the Jews, each one of them comes to him and says, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for protecting us. And not only that, he said every single one of them brings him food. Where do you see such wonderful people? That's a Kiddush Hashem. I want to close with two stories. And these stories really remind us of what we have to do to create a Kiddush Hashem. Because it's so easy to create a Chilul Hashem, to do the wrong thing and to get the wrong thing out there. There's a story about a Rabbi Noach Murov of New Haven, Connecticut. And when I heard the story, I, I thought it was amazing. He bought a desk, a used desk on Craigslist for $150. And they went to pick up the desk and they brought the desk. And when they brought the desk back from the, the people they bought it from, they brought it to their own home. And they were carrying the desk and they realized they never measured the door. The door must have been a 30-inch door. The desk must have been 32 by 32 with the legs. So he said that, what did they do? They started to take apart the desk in order to get the desk through the door. So they removed the top of the desk and they saw sitting behind where the drawer is, a bag. They pulled out the bag, they opened the bag and inside the bag was $98,000 in cash. $98,000 in cash in a desk that they bought for 150. We won lotto. What did they do? They immediately picked up the phone. They called the original owner, who was shocked and in tears. Patty, the original owner, and she hid the money she inherited many years before, but she forgot where she hid the money. And she told him, you could have kept the money. She couldn't believe, she couldn't believe that they wanted to return the money. She says that, they, they shared the story later on. They shared the story. He t he, the rabbi tells over the story and he sh shared the story at a, uh, I think it was an Aguda convention. 
when they returned the money, they brought the money back, and, and he, he was telling at the Agudah Convention, and Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, he, uh, he basically said to them that it was necessary to publicize what had happened. They had brought the desk, they had brought the money back, the lady wanted to give them a reward, they didn't want to take the reward, and finally they realized they had to take something because she wouldn't let them leave without it. Says so what happened is they called CNN, I don't know, CNN, Fox, one of them, and uh, they told them the story, and they immediately put the story, they verified the story, the story went viral, and it went from station to station and network to network. And we saw that within a few days, this viral story created such a wonderful, wonderful Kiddush Hashem to show how these Jewish people were so wonderful and so nice and so thoughtful to return the money to this lady. I want to finish one more last story. This is one of my favorite stories that the rabbi used to tell us. And this story shows us that we could do a Kiddush Hashem or a Chilul Hashem. We don't even know we did it. The rabbis tell us that after 120 years, when we're judged in Shamayim, we're judged for our actions, and we're judged by the fruits of our actions. We can do an action, and as a result of the action, other things happen that we may not even be aware of. So the story is as follows. There was a UJA trip to Eretz Yisrael, and they were bringing these people from Texas, and they were very secular Jews who had a love of Israel and wanted to see Israel. And they brought them from place to place. And each place the tour guide would tell them, we're going to spend 42 minutes here and please get off the bus and please get back on the bus. And one of the stops inevitably was the Kotel Amarabi, the, the, the Western Wall. So they got off the bus and the tour guide told them, okay, please make sure you're back on the bus. The bus is leaving in one hour. And there was this man from Texas, from Austin, Texas, a very, very wealthy man, and he gets off the bus, and he walks up to the wall, and he puts on one of those paper yarmulkes, and he comes up to the wall, and he's not really sure what to say. And then he sees this person praying, and he sees the person is connected in such a way that he can't even imagine being connected. And he's just enthralled by it just watching him what's going on and he wants to stay and wait and talk to him and he stays there for an hour and nothing and finally the tour guide comes and says we're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving we're already 20 minutes late and finally he says okay, okay and as he's walking out backwards he's watching this guy in prayer and he's so moved by it, but he just doesn't understand what this guy could be doing. And he gets back on the bus, and they continue the trip. And for the rest of the trip, he's haunted by what this guy must have been doing. And they get back home to America, and he's in Austin, Texas, and he's still wondering what this guy was doing. And he says, this guy affected me in such a way I need to explore, I need to discover. He says, this guy must have been an Orthodox Jew. Let me find some Orthodox Jews here in Austin. And he finds a rabbi and he says, I want to do something for this guy. I want to do something for this guy. I want to connect to this guy. What do I do? And the rabbi says, he's serious. He says, serious, I'm a very, very wealthy man. I don't have many years to live. What can I do? And he convinces the man to build and set up 
a kolel in Austin. A yeshiva and a kolel where people could be supported to go learn. And the man says, done. And he puts up the money to build this kolel. And it operates. And it grows. Now this man who was praying by the kotel, this man who was praying by the kotel didn't even realize what his actions caused. And Rabbi Avitai used to tell us that after 120 years, this guy's going to go up to Shamayim. And when he gets up to Shamayim, they're going to look at all his deeds and weigh them on a scale. And they're going to say, for all your deeds, we built you a beautiful house in Gan Eden, on this beautiful street in Gan Eden. And here's your house. And he's going to say, but look, there's a palace behind the house. What's that? And the angel's going to tell him, that palace is also for you. That's your palace. He says, for what? He says, that's your palace for all the Torah that was learned and taught in Austin. And the rabbi in his Moroccan accent used to finish and say, Austin? Vus is Austin? The man had no idea that he contributed, that he did such a wonderful mitzvah. Not funny. (laughs) That he contributed such a wonderful thing. All of our actions are watched. All of our actions are seen. And all of our actions cause reactions. They cause reactions in the world. And we have to remember that. How crucial is a Kiddush Hashem? And how damaging is a Chilul Hashem? To the point where Hashem judges a Sadiq to the breath of a hair. Let us all remember, as we go back into the world... Little by little, we go back into the world. Let's take from these months that we've been away from the world, these months that we've been able to connect even though we're separated, reevaluate our lives and remember, we are B'nai Israel. We're the chosen people. And everyone in the world knows that. They know that we're the chosen people. They know that we're the people of Hashem and we're identified as the people of Hashem and what each and every one of us does causes all of us to be judged let's take that let's go forward with it and let's show to do a Kiddush Hashem to the point where Hashem will look at us and say beautiful people and send us Mashiach Amen thanks everyone for joining us please yeah 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 stop recording wait one second